Let's talk about social media as memory machines. All this and more today on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. On today's episode, I stray away from television to social media to really review some literature and talk about some ideas that really connect into or really between social media and collective memory. So I realize that if you've been listening with us through this new limited series uh, season, or really limited episode season, you've heard us talk about how NFL films actively created memory or a collective memory for NFL. And we've also talked about um, sports documentaries as far as nostalgia and binge watching. We also talked about the idea of sort of companies or film studios, whether they will deliberately attempt to craft the image of a celebrity who passes too early and using the example of Bruce Lee and asking whether that's going to be very similar to what we'll see with Chadwick Boseman. Uh, I've also talked about uh, Belushi as a case study, uh, the documentary Belushi rather, as a case study for how uh, historians revisit stories that seem like they've been told long, long, long ago and sort of how they uh, come back to life. And I've also talked about the idea of memory bubbles and persistent nostalgia and dead celebrities in the episode I titled Sticking with the Stars You Know. So today what I'd like to do is to do more of this sort of thought process, this sort of public drafting, if you will, of my ideas, because I think it's also a good way to introduce you guys to some of these ideas, or at least how we, we think about them in terms of collective memory. So this episode will probably be a little bit shorter than uh, some of the other episodes, because honestly, this is a type of work that is uh, one in progress. And also, if I'm being completely selfish, you will see a uh, textual version of uh, this episode, basically a transcript, if you will, uh, on my own personal website, and that's jonathanbullinger.com. And again, I use the blog space as a way to sort of set out some rough ideas, some drafts of ideas as a way to claim some territory over them. And I just thought it would be interesting as a way to sort of both introduce you to these ideas and also, to be honest, to promote them a little bit to do an audio version for you today, okay? Now, the other thing that is happening that you need to know, and if I'm being completely honest, <laughs> is that uh, for some reason my, my one cat, uh, Cake, is decided to come hang out with me while I'm recording this episode. Uh, so he's in the room and trapped in the room with me right now, so... Who knows, you might hear him purring, or you might hear him uh, 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 crying a little bit, uh, but uh, if it happens, it happens. I may not necessarily cut it out, okay? And then the other thing that I want to uh, mention to you guys uh, just quickly, because again, if you've been listening through the episodes, you know that I've been a little uh, vague or general with some of the, the episode numbers and how many uh, numbers of episodes are left, but basically, uh, after today, we'll have one more main feed episode left, and that'll be available um, two weeks from now, obviously. 
And then wrapped around that last main feed episode, you'll also have two more bonus episodes available to you if you are a Patreon uh, subscriber. And again, if you're coming late to the game to this season, you get all these new free episodes in this main feed, as you see uh, before you and you're in your phone or device. And, and again, it's what I just talked about. It's the uh, sports documentaries and NFL films episode and the Chadwick Boseman episode and um, uh, sticking with the stars you know episode, etc. And then if you wanted to chip in a few dollars, you can get access through our Patreon page, not only to the same number of bonus episodes that are all brand new that we created for this season, but you will also uh, get access to the past archive of episodes, which I believe it is, I want to say, 87, uh, 87 old episodes. Uh, so that's a, I'd like to think that's a, a good value for, <laughs> for your dollar. And then I'll also say that um, while I realize not everyone's going to listen to this in real time uh, as it's being released, uh, for those who are, the last two episodes, the last bonus and the last main feed episode, are both going to be holiday themed, okay? And just maybe for those Patreon listeners, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you might just hear all three hosts in the last bonus episode that'll be released just before uh, the uh, late December holidays. But again, if you're listening to this in in July or February or whenever, um, you know, that's okay. That's okay as well. But for those that are listening right now, that's sort of where, where we're going. Okay. Okay. So what I'd like to do here is I'm going to take you through this idea of social media as what I call memory machines. And I'm going to be able to rehearse some foundational uh, definitions and some basic concepts that honestly some of you might already know a, a million things about. Others, it'll be totally new. And then what I'll do is toward the end is I, w- I don't want to give everything away at this point because again, it's an idea that's in progress and I may end up trying to publish on it later, etc. But I just want to kind of claim some territory here. So at the end, what I'll show you is sort of where I might be going with it, but I won't be too specific about it because, again, I want to leave something for myself to still <laughs> still surprise some people down the road. Um, so it'll be a little bit more of a riff at the end, and then we'll we'll finish up. And again, this will probably be a bit of a shorter episode than uh, the rest of this this episode's, uh, or sorry, season's episodes. So to start us off here, a bit of an introduction. I am, in my own work... I am absolutely fascinated by the topic, obviously, of social or what we call social or collective memory. And the person acknowledged as sort of the founding father for this discipline is a sociologist named Maurice Hobwox. And he lived basically at the latter part of the 19th century up through just about the first half of the 20th century. He died in, in 1945. And his central insight was that individual memory only has significance and meaning simply because we're members of social groups. A very simple idea, but a very powerful idea, right? We all have individual memory or the capacity for individual memory, but they only mean it, they only mean a, a, a goddamn thing, if you will, is because we are members of social groups. So collective memory becomes even more interesting now that we live in the time not of hobwocks, but the time of social media, surveillance, increasing automation, and ever-improving artificial intelligence. 
The objective of this episode is to outline some of these more interesting questions, areas of study, and ideas within the subject. It's not quite a proper, like I said, it's not quite a proper comprehensive review of the literature. And if I'm being really honest as a scholar, I don't think it's necessarily establishing new theory, although there is some new terminology there. But rather, it's meant as an introduction to the topic for a broader range of interested readers or listeners, <laughs> and as a way for me to establish some vocabulary, some phrases, and like I said, that jargon that I will most likely incorporate into some of my future work. Okay? So let's start off with the basic idea here. Smartphones as what I'm calling memory machines. I often half-jokingly tell my undergraduates that their lives are defined by mobile, smartphone-based social media apps that are built not for deep contemplation, but rather for distracted, reactionary, and emotion-based behavior. End quote. <laughs> now, I'm being overly cynical with my students for hopefully a comedic effect, but in truth, what fascinates me about smartphone-based social media apps and our behavior within them is their duality. We all now understand that many of our posts are meant to be a sort of private-slash-public hybrid. Private in the sense that it is distributed to our chosen social network where we might type a genuine thought or, or feeling to them. But public in that every post is a mini mass broadcast, not to one person, but perhaps, oh, I don't know, hundreds or, or even thousands of people. Public also in that there is always the chance a larger network will see the message and it will be exchanged farther and farther out of our relatively small circle. So, to use old terminology, these apps allow us to each become mini-broadcast stations, pumping out a message that may be meant to feel private or intimate, but it is always already public in a certain kind of way. All of this technology is made possible in part due to the proliferation of, speed, and ease of use of databases that store, organize, and connect the various bits of data we choose to share. It is a wonderful storage system for our meaningful moments, ephemeral thoughts, and the miscellanea and minutia of everyday life. These databases' ability to connect all this data and our ability to search through this big data pile is all thanks to metadata, or, as you already know, data about data. So, what we're left with is a set of privately owned social media apps that, at the very least, are a set of databases and, at most, reach the level of personal, ongoing archive. What I also jokingly tell my students is that they shouldn't call their smartphone or a smartphone, but rather a memory machine. So let's try to highlight some of the more interesting elements surrounding the idea of smartphone-based social media apps as our own personal memory machines. Again, to reiterate from that introduction, I'm not presenting these as my own ideas. Rather, they're a collection and synthesis of pre-existing scholarly ideas around issues of collective memory. Let's begin with the basic idea that a social media app maintains an archive of your posts. By that very design choice, 
these interfaces are meant to be social. What I mean is, one cannot have an identity if one has no memories, and one cannot have meaningful memories if one is not part of a social group. So, in this way, it would actually be weird if social media apps did not archive a record of your communicative interaction. The weirdness is, of course, that human memory tends to fade or at least gets hidden away within the brain over time. Unless a human being possesses some type of idiot savant abilities, humans rarely possess perfect recall. Ask any person who's suffered from alcohol addiction or maybe someone giving a statement to a police officer after a traffic accident about what exactly happened. Yeah, memory is tricky that way. Not, of course, within your favorite social media app. Don't worry, I know what you're probably thinking. But Jonathan, that is a representation of the memory, not the memory itself. However, scholarship has shown, and I would cite Von Dake here, that there is an interplay between pure organic memory and representations and records of the moment. So think photographs. Especially as time goes on, and memory does become fuzzy, we may come to rely more on the record or representation to at least trigger the memory, if not eventually to become the memory itself. Let's use here an ideal type, or really a perfect model or extreme example, to illustrate the effect of social media here. Let's say that when I was four and a half years old, me and my older brother goofed around and draped beach blankets around ourselves. We wore snor <laughs> snorkel goggles and adorably, or at least in our, our minds, adorably stood over one another as some sort of cutesy snorkel blanket monster. Now, prior to social media, I would have my sensory memory, right? Like what the wood floor felt like on my bare feet, the smell of those laundered blankets, whether my brother's skin was maybe hot or cold as I pushed my head back into his stomach. I may or may not also remember what was said or whether we said something funny. Also, most likely a photograph may have been taken. In this scenario, we have the sense memory, the spoken language, and a single photographic record that I must put together in my mind in order to create the memory of the moment. Now again, I'm deliberately constructing ideal types or perfect models here to contrast my examples and illustrate my points. Today, in social media's version, we have the sense memory, we have most likely multiple photographs, a curated post, possibly with photo editing and filters, and some type of written caption. Yes, when presented with the photograph, the social media user does the same memory reconstruction work as the pre-social media user. However, I would argue it is more likely they will interact with the memory by either choosing to look at or being presented with the original post with caption. If that's the case, then the memory in a sense comes to them always, already, perfectly recorded, sealed, and delivered. Why do I say that the person is more likely to see the original post rather than the photograph? Well, this leads me to my next two points.
There is an irony built into our memory machines, and it is a simple one. We have the ability to record and store thousands of records, and yet, if we're being honest, we never really look at them. This is due in part to just the sheer amount of data and ease with which we can collect it. Personally, I've been the proud parent and owner of the aforementioned uh, two cats. I also have taken way more photographs of these two little furballs over the years to honestly ever really look at them all or realistically use or enjoy them in a useful way. It is easy to record both in still and motion images. Many of us are privileged to own or control large amounts of digital storage space, and the phone or camera is practically in my hand so much anyway, it almost becomes like a reflex. So, while I'm sure some people still enjoy creating, organizing, and curating their own personal digital photo albums, my guess is that many rely on the social media app as central gateway and curator to their digital archives. This leads me to my second point. I mentioned above that since communication, identity, and memory are interdependent with one another, it actually isn't weird that social media apps keep your posts as an archive. Yet, because the digital archive is much closer to perfect recall than human memory, it nonetheless gets us to the question. The tension between something that is meant to be for the present moment, and hence temporary, versus something that is meant to be stored and recalled. The sort of dumbed-down, fear-based, now almost trite version of this question is when you hear some adult try to scare a high schooler or a college student with the admonishment, quote, be careful what you post, or another quote, you should delete everything before applying for jobs, exclamation point. The better, more interesting thought is to ask, what does it mean when our primary mode of socializing and connecting is privately owned, data-driven social media apps that archive everything that you choose to post? That's a bigger question, I think, much more engaging. (laughs) And this question has implications for the act of growing up or maturation. It also connects to a much larger topic within collective memory studies that deals with societal power. Who has the power to remember and who has the power to forget? While rightfully reserved for larger issues regarding group or cultural identities, active challenge or appeasement on the part of countries, and individual personal experiences of trauma, I feel it is useful to mention here nonetheless. In one sense, Western culture artificially creates childhood as an idyllic time of exploration, growth, and experimentation where for the most part there are few repercussions. Yet in the social media feed there is potentially no differentiation. It is all just a line of thoughts and feelings that may be judged with equal weight regardless of the age of the post or poster. I would argue that prior to social media there was greater leeway between which thoughts and behaviors 
were meant to be temporary and ephemeral, example, phases we go through, personas we try on, and those that were significant, for example, certain rituals or accomplishments. Simply by the nature of the app design, this differentiation and its nuances are muted, if not erased altogether. Yes, users have a choice to use the app and also make choices about what they feel to be worth posting. Yet, the desire to participate in the group or network is strong, and so the potential for something meant to be a fleeting thought or brief emotional tantrum now is archived right next to our greatest of accomplishments, whether we really wanted it to be a memory or not. Or to put it more simply, the companies retain absolutely the power to remember, and we lose the power to forget. Now, this next section, I want to briefly summarize some of the undergraduate responses I've received over the years uh, for a class that I teach and I, I created called Memory, Media, and Identity. Now, obviously, there's you know no identities here. There's no uh, revealing of who said what. But collectively, I think it's a good way to remind me about how students see social media, because it truly is their medium, right? Their generational medium. It certainly isn't mine. I use it, but it's not mine the way it's theirs. So I just want to quickly um, summarize some of their their uh, inputs here, and then I'll move on to the, the next set of thoughts, okay? So I find that uh, some of my students have some pretty insightful comments. And while I can't extrapolate these students' impressions regarding social media and memory to like every college-age young person, or even whether they necessarily correlate to existing research, yet as a sort of quasi-sample or pilot inquiry regarding how these younger brains uh, see and, and, and how they would connect between social media and memory, I, I really find them useful. So, for example, some liken the perceived permanence of social media representation of collective memory to that of something more tangible like magazines. Others concur, reminding us it isn't just a repository for their own lives, but also, quote, events outside our lives we've shared or reposted. And I think that's interesting, right? The idea that the behavior is, is of memory is reposting, right? That's sort of the share element there. Though another rightly pointed out that while national holidays and commemorations are usually mentioned, users usually only post symbolic images rather than actually discussing or digging into the event's greater significance or meaning, which I thought was a smart insight. And then another student made the obvious and direct comparison of social media acting as a quote-unquote hard drive for our brains, and another says that they used Instagram as a memory machine when she was feeling particularly nostalgic. Another was even more direct regarding both her love of social media and nostalgic utility it provides. She wrote this, quote, Social media is genuinely something very important to me 
and my feelings toward my childhood and being able to capture the exact feeling of a movement or moment is a priceless asset, end quote. However, another went much deeper regarding the routine of using social media. She said, so by posting and even texting about an event that has happened, your brain solidifies its feelings about a situation and will trigger those feelings and memories when you look back upon them. And I thought that was smart on her part because she's showing the sort of double move there, right? The, the act of posting first, it sort of solidifies, then by going back to it, it'll reaffirm it. Others note the potentiality for an echo effect that would help to establish the quote-unquote accepted collective memory via social media. Or another student focused simply on social media's ability to replicate certain sensory information that aids in memory's constructions. So uh, they wrote, pictures, videos, sounds from the event all make people on social media feel like they have a memory of it. And uh, I think that's also a really smart insight, right? The sort of sensory immersion, um, the idea of watching videos and feeling like that is an actual representation of the moment, uh, and then sharing it, right? That's a real close approximation to collective memory. While a different student saw such memory functions as simply capitalistic, <laughs> remarking that all platforms have some type of memory function in order to keep old posts, quote unquote, relevant to the user and to keep them on the platform. And I thought that was smart because it, it uh, was a good insight on their part. And it also could be something that crass and base, right? It's just we're here to make money and we need you to stay on the on the platform. And this is a good way to keep you engaged. And then another connected the siloing of social media networks to memory. She wrote that it is far easier for a social media group or network to establish a collective memory when they are not a part of another group that may present a conflicting group memory. And I thought that was really smart, right? We, we sort of get siloed into our smaller and smaller little group of networks, only being fed what we want to see. And while a different student felt social media today is used less to meet new people as it is to simply reaffirm and strengthen existing group identities. So, you know, I think it, it, it concurs with that, that previous student. So for her, events have become even more personalized or exclusive and when shared, simply shared amongst a very small group of people. Um, which is true, but again, it's always the potential there for the, the, public, uh, the public statement as well. And this sentiment supports the previous about the ease of group memory in the age of online social networks. And then a little more specifically here, certain they wrote certain platforms had a very strong identity and purpose. Uh, for example, one student wrote Twitter is a really good one at establishing cultural beliefs and shared knowledge. When something on Twitter goes viral, it becomes cemented in collective memory, whether that be a meme that people reference for years or a controversial tweet, usually political, that shapes the mass public perception of an issue, end quote. And again, I thought that was uh, pretty on point. And then last but not least, one student noted a specific example tied to the promotion of nostalgia, or from her perspective, the creation of nostalgia. She mentioned that social media nostalgia tends to tr bring back childhood objects she either forgot about or just simply hadn't originally experienced. She felt that ultimately, quote, bringing these memories back plays such a monumental role in how we refer to our childhood and the nostalgia it brings, end quote. So I mention that because while sometimes we do know better than other folks, just simply because we've spent more time 
focusing on it and studying the phenomenon, I think it's also good, of course, to you know triangulate your research and again this isn't um, applicable to every single undergraduate right i can't even say it's applicable to my entire university student body right it's just a couple students in class over a few semesters but nonetheless i think you would agree with me that some of them brought up some really smart ideas about how they're seeing the potential there and the power there of social media and how it works uh, in conjunction with collective memory Many of the most common social media apps act as memory machines in actually several different ways. In many cases, social media is personal to the user, and what they post and view on their platform is directly related to them and their life. So that would be like Instagram and Facebook, for example. This creates a time capsule, in a way, for the user to reflect on moments from their life and their peers' lives that were particularly notable to them. These moments, on most platforms, are seen in conjunction with the specific date and sometimes the time that the moment was posted. This makes it easy to take a look at the past from a distance and view trends or patterns that may resurface other memories related to them. Not only is social media a quote-unquote memory machine for personal use, but some social media apps are best suited to support the memory of larger groups of people such as groups based on geography or distinct interest. So think about Twitter, Reddit, or TikTok. Similarly, to more personal social media, each post is linked to a specific date and time that the moment was posted and provides tangible evidence of particular trends, mannerisms, or events that were going on at a certain point within our recent history. All it takes is a quick search of a certain event and thousands of results will appear, showing the user and what memories are associated with specific words, phrases, and time periods. And honestly, as one of my students mentioned, it may not be anything too deep. It literally could be just a bunch of pretty much the same photo or digitally altered photo remembering or commemorating 9-11. There might not be too much sort of surface depth there to be sort of, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but what I mean is, so there is certainly a power in representing and retrieving those certain uh, words, phrases, or time periods, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that there's uh, a depth or variety of um, uh, mnemonic representations for any of it. So, For this short episode, I want to get into some ideas here that I'm not going to lay out as specifically as the others, but to sort of show you where I'm going with this, okay? And that's the general idea of automation of memory, okay? So real quick, one of my favorite uh, scholars is Eviatar Zerubbabel, who's a sociologist out of Rutgers University. And one of his more, or I should say probably his most famous work, although he's had a few, you know, quote-unquote hits (laughs) over the years, scholarly hits, but one is showing the role that the calendar played in in building up uh, nations and and culture. And so basically the the idea there 
is if you can kind of control sort of when people think about things, well, that helps to very much build a sense of identity, right? So if it's a Tuesday is a Tuesday is a Tuesday, but if Tuesday is now this whatever, blah, 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 X, Y, Z day, well, now it takes on a significance and your mental state is altered a bit because you're not thinking of yourself or that it's just your own interpretation, but you're thinking you're thinking the nation or you're thinking the larger group, right? So there's a there's a power there. And so what I would do basically is the if you look at simple things like throwback Thursdays on social media or, um, you know, a time hop or Facebook memories, right? I get up on a morning on, say, it's Saturday morning and it's just a random Saturday in November and that's what's in my mind. Oh, this is just random Saturday in November. But if Facebook memory shows me that exactly seven years ago this event happened, now, it's possible, like much of social media, I look at it for a millisecond and immediately forget it, okay? I'm not saying that isn't possible. It is possible. But it's also possible, then, that suddenly it's not a random Saturday in November. It is now, oh, it's the seventh anniversary of that moment in, in you know, seven years ago in uh, November, da, 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 right? And it could potentially sort of shade or, or color how I, I look at the day. So it would basically be to connect some of Zerubal's ideas of calendar work along with the automation of um, social media. And then I'm not going to get into this too much because honestly, I, I don't want to give away the whole the whole trick here. But there's also been a lot of research as far as um, uh, nostalgia and using uh, exposure to different imager, images still in motion uh, within uh, certain immersive environments and VR, etc., that shows that you know the the line between what we would call a real memory and a imagined memory or imagined past, that boundary between the two isn't quite as as thick and impenetrable as we kind of think it is. So that would also be an area I'd want to go into because if I'm calling it memory machines, right? We're in, in implying that it's a unique individual version of that machine. But with that kind of research, and again, combined with some automation, and I didn't even talk about the idea of, well, I'll talk about that in a second, I guess. Um, you know, it may not be uh, as unique or individual uh, or, or you know, maybe, um, what would be the word, impenetrable as we, we often think of it. And then there's some also some neat ideas here that, again, I don't know if it connects perfectly with... Well, no, it does connect with it, but it, it goes off in its own branch a bit. But again, it's not just that the social media is automated, but there's also automated cameras, video and still. And then there's apps that will automatically upload or download those images or that footage to a phone or device. And so then that also sort of brings into question how present does one have to actually be uh, within their own their own memories, okay. So that's sort of some of the areas that I'd I'd want to delve into here if I take this work uh, a little bit a little bit further. So what I want to do to to finish this short uh, episode, uh, as far as the content, and then I'll do you know my normal goodbyes, is that I've been talking about this phrase memory machines. And that's absolutely a phrase that I want to throw out there that I think is, it has some staying power. 
but the the more flowery uh, <laughs> i don't know i don't want to be pompous here but let's call it like poetic for lack of a better better word but the more sort of poetic phrase that i that really got me started on this idea and the one that i would eventually use for some sort of article or or some sort of work actually comes back years ago now uh for when i was um uh, teaching a course, uh, during my graduate school years. And I'll be honest, I don't quite remember, uh, where in the semester I was or what the particular lesson was, but the, the short version of it is I was asking a question to the class and I was setting up this idea about social media. And I guess I was probably talking about archive and social media or something. And I was, I think I was throwing out to the, to the undergraduates that, you know, how much powerful these these social media apps can can be as archives and i kind of laid it on thick and i laid it on thick and i laid it on thick cuz you know sometimes you want to kind of poke the bear to kind of get them to to react and really start getting engaged with the conversation and then you know beyond that prompting i didn't specifically use this phrase i didn't use this language the student came up with it all on his own but almost you know perfectly beautifully he raised his hand to contribute to the conversation and he said, you know, he said more than this, but he basically uh, either started or finished by saying the following. He said, yeah, yeah, this is happening. And yeah, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, yeah, this is happening, professor. But it's not like we're building pyramids to ourselves. <laughs> and so... That in my mind went. That's that's the article title, or that's the episode title, or that's the book title, <laughs> right? Um, so I love that phrase. So, as a way to conclude the the content of this episode, I'll just simply say this: to use that to crib directly from that student's uh, idea or phrase, I should say. So yes, I would argue we are building pyramids to ourselves, but. Like Egypt's slaves, today's automation is doing the work for us. So in a sense, the digital pyramid will stand, but it might be actually quite hollow. And so with that, I'm going to end this episode by simply uh, thanking you as I always do. If you've chosen to listen through to the whole, uh, the entirety of the episode length, I appreciate it. I know I get it. There's lots of content you can listen to. And if you've chosen to listen to this, it's great. I love the support. We all do, you know, Andrew and Steve. And I also just simply remind you that uh, if you haven't listened to the whole new season yet so far, uh, I mentioned the episode, the episodes, uh, at the top of this episode, please make sure you catch up. I mean, we're getting, again, if you're listening in real time, we're getting that time of the season when there might be more inside days and there might be shorter days and might be a good time to kind of warm up with some good food or something good to drink and kind of crank up a podcast and listen to it while you get some things done or keep your body moving. And then as I always say is even if you yourself aren't interested, but you might have a friend or a relative that might be, uh, 
into podcasts and they they like to sort of get the extra content maybe uh see if they want to float a few bucks for the patreon or maybe as a as a holiday gift you know heck i don't know maybe you know sign them up for patreon and then they can get access to our our again over 80 episode archive so just to remind you i said it up front but i'll say it again i will see you guys again in uh in two weeks for um what will be our uh sorry i'm just getting the list in front of me here i will see you in two weeks for our last new main feed episode of the season again it will be holiday focused and you never know there might be one or two uh, other hosts co-hosts who might show up for that episode wink wink and then our patreon subscribers Next week, you will get the uh, penultimate uh, bonus episode. And then uh, right before the holiday, you will also then get our second and absolute ultimate uh, uh, bonus episode, also holiday-themed. And again, you just might see more, you might just hear, rather, more than me uh, for that holiday, holiday special, okay? So again, if you've stayed through, I appreciate it. I thank you for listening. I hope the holidays have treated you well. And um, I hope that you've gotten time to relax and get your mind cleared and, and think about some of these topics and ideas that, that are of interest to you. Okay? And so with that, thanks again. I'm Jonathan Bullinger. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff.